Hello friends, how you doing? You're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. My podcast where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. So as usual, thanks for making your way to my little uh, cul-de-sac of the internet and I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which is a good one. And I have to say, this week's episode really does fit the tagline. So when I started the podcast earlier in 2017, I definitely wanted to interview the modern day legends and I've been lucky enough to do that as you probably gathered in the last few weeks people like Mick Fanning, Travis Rice, Brian Gucci but equally as important to me was shining a light on those often forgotten episodes in action sports history uh, which is why I was so keen to interview John Boyer for the podcast who's this week's guest. So keen in fact that for only the second time in the history of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast I broke my no Skype rule and got on the blower to John in LA so we could take care of this one. So who is John Boyer? Well, if you're a student of snowboarding, you should probably know that, but I'm going to guess that you don't know who he is. Today, John makes his living as a screenwriter in Hollywood, working on spec scripts and studio writing jobs. But back in the day, during the late 80s and early 90s, John Boyer was one of the original snowboard pros who, as you'll hear, had one of the earliest pro models out there. So really... This is an interview in two halves. The first half is a fascinating insight into the life of a screenwriter working in the Hollywood trenches. And the second half is about John's former life as one of North America's um, original snowboard pros. Given the lie to the old F. Scott Fitzgerald canard, there are no second acts in American lives because this is a pretty spectacular second act, as you're going to hear. As you're going to gather from this chat, myself and John are, are friends. We met in Portland in around... 2006 when we were both working on a job for Motorola I believe which goes to date it we spent a week or so working and riding at Mount Hood hanging out in Portland playing music to each other and generally chatting a lot of shit and over the years we stayed in touch and became good virtual internet buddies primarily through Twitter and uh, and Instagram and at the time he told me he was going to head to LA or I think he'd maybe only just moved there and um he was a, he was a, an ad director, I think, at that point. And I've watched on from the sidelines as he's carved out the career that he's currently got and um, and watched as he's made himself, put himself on the cusp of ever greater things. And just before I did this interview, there was a really nice serendipitous moment. I was at my mum's house cleaning out a load of old files and tap from the teenage years, leafing through one of my old exercise books from when I was doing my A-levels in what must have been around 92. And I found an old Airwalk ad that I'd pulled out of some mag and stuck in the back cover, probably Transworld, I think. And who's the rider doing a backside air shot by Dan O'Pendigrass? It's only John Boyer. So I texted him a picture of it, which, needless to say, tickled us both very much, given the, uh, as I say, the serendipitous nature of that little episode. A couple of other things to note on this one. Uh, I had another cold. Um, you're probably thinking, I've always got a cold. And I've definitely got one in this. So... I guess that's the thing when you're doing something like this, your every sniffle and bout of man flu is recorded for posterity. And the other thing I learned is that John's mic is way better than mine. So I'm upgrading. Anyway, really enjoyed this one and I hope you do too. So here it is, my chat with snowboard legend and Hollywood screenwriter John Boyer on the second act. Enjoy. So, John Boyer, how you doing? I, I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Did I interrupt your uh, 
morning writing routine. Yeah, I, that sound that makes it sound a writing routine makes it sound so uh, professional. Like I really know what I'm doing, but uh, no, I. Uh, <laughs> some days I write in the morning. Some days I write in the afternoon, but not really. It's good. <laughs> and what what are you working on? I have a few projects right now. Um, I'm finishing up uh, a new spec script of mine and well, just doing a, uh, a, some last minute notes that I'm addressing that, uh, hopefully to try to make it better. <laughs> and, right. and then, uh, I'm outlining a new spec as, as an idea that I got into my head that I just don't want to lose. So I usually kind of take a bit of a breather between spec ideas, but this one, I kind of wanted to get out. And then, um, as far as actual gigs, um, you know, I have I have a script called Freebird that I originally wrote that we're I'm I'm currently doing a uh, a sort of I guess you would call it almost like a, a previs. I'm trying to get the them to let me direct it. What's a previs? What does that mean? Well, it's a previs visualization. You know, so uh, a lot of directors. You know, I, I directed a lot of commercials and came from action sports, as you know. We'll get into that, I'm sure, but. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I uh, I wanted to um, originally wrote this to direct it, but you know, getting anybody to give a first time feature director money is is difficult, you know. And I imagine, and, yeah, especially something of this scale. And yeah, and it's not outside the realm of possible, but uh, but you know, you have to. They kind of want to see that you you've got it, and a bunch of old TV commercials and action sports clips. Um, they may be cool. <laughs> they look great, but they want to see that I can direct performance. So um, I'm putting together a piece. It's like, I guess basically like a fake movie trailer. That's what I'm going to direct. And I've got some actors and a whole crew of people and uh, put this together and put it in front of them and the producers and financiers and, and see what they think, you know, and just say, look, you know, I, I would like to be considered to direct this. And, um, I mean, a lot of directors, even, even very experienced directors, when they want a specific job, they often put together something like Ryan Johnson, who recently directed the new star Wars film that's about to come out at Christmas. Just, just Um, that. Yeah. Just that when he was making a film called Looper, uh, he put together what's called a clipomatic. So he took, he took, uh, he took a bunch of sections from little clips from different films, different movies, and that had the same visual kind of tone and just sort of probably to show a studio or financiers, this is his vision for it. Just, it lets everybody go, okay, I see what you're saying rather than some written document. Yeah. So because it's such a visual medium, it's, it's always good for people to watch something. Yeah. And uh, you know, so a, a lot of, you know, very established directors, Still do. It's the same thing. You know, we're all pitching. We're all pitching. Yeah. Trying to get somebody to say yes. Because Freebird was a spec script, right? And I guess for people that that are listening to this that haven't got a clue what that means. So that's literally like a speculative script, right? That's something that you write with no finance. It's an idea that you kind of present and then try and sell, right? Is that effectively how you describe it? That would be, yeah, that's that's exactly it. Um, In my case, you know, I didn't really... I didn't really write it to try to sell it. I honestly didn't know what I was doing. Um, I was coming out of action sports. I was 
you know, I don't want to say done with it, but I was moving on into a, into a different stage of my life. Well, and- when we met, which I think was probably 2006, we just remembered. Yeah. So we met on a job, didn't we, in Mount Hood? And I remember you telling me then, I think you just moved to LA then. And I think, I think, would that be about right? Yeah. I had just moved up from North County, San Diego, which is, <laughs> I call it the action sports retirement center. Uh, yeah, still is. it still is, you know, <laughs> it's where everybody from action sports either currently lives or moves to, because it's this idyllic, it's a great zone, you know, like there's yeah. skaters, surfers, snowboarders, and like-minded people. And they all live there. And it's a really beautiful place. It's a cool town, but, um, yeah, I, uh, I remember you saying though that you you were like yeah you know I'm, I'm this is this is kind of what I'm thinking about doing. Yeah, it's something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to make films and tell stories. Um, so I knew that when I was coming to the end of my, I guess tenure in action sports, I I wanted to move on to this. And uh, I had just gotten married, and my wife, who moved down from Canada as well, she knew that I always wanted to move up to LA and give it a go but I'd never really taken that leap. And so when she moved down and we got married and she said, listen, I think it's time we go to LA. If you're going to do this, you got to do it now. So we did. And I didn't realize, you know, as most people, I didn't really think about how difficult it was or actually think of the hurdles or, or, or any of those aspects of, of moving to Los Angeles. Cause it's, you know, the city is kind of a beast and it chews people up. And I, I didn't come here with this wide-eyed dream of, I just want to be making movies, but I thought, you know, if you're going to try to strike oil, you need to go where the oil is. Yeah. And yeah, so when we met, uh, I just kind of started playing with the idea of screenwriting. Uh, I had no idea how to do it. So, right. um, did you have the idea for the film then for Freebird, the original? No, I don't, I don't think I did. I, I, at that time, I was thinking I was going to write comedies. Right. And Freebird is not a comedy. So. Might be a good point to quickly explain right. what it is. Okay. So um, Freebird is, uh, it's about a washed up motorcycle daredevil who hasn't ridden motorcycles in about 20 years. And he is diagnosed with uh, a degenerative disease and decides for the first time in 20 years that he's going to start riding motorcycles again and then gets the idea in his head that he wants to jump, do one last jump before his mind is gone. And in the process, he meets a young Moto X current, like Red Bull freestyle type motocross superstar who idolized him growing up. And they create this bond and, and, you know, it's a father, son or older brother type bond. And, to help him bring his dream to fruition. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really cool idea. I'm really proud of this script and, and it, it was, um, it has like this certain sense of Americana, the feel of the, of the movie and, uh, or the script. It's not a movie yet soon to be hopefully. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I wrote that, but that, that was definitely not the, the first, that was definitely not the first screenplay I wrote um, leading up to that. So how many did you do before that? A whopping two. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I The learning curve for me was pretty quick, although, um, yeah, the first script I wrote was a horrible comedy that 
I mean, it wasn't funny. That's, that's the thing. And I think, <laughs> I think I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to, I want to get out of advertising. I want to get out of action sports. I'm going to write a script that I'm going to direct myself. My wife was probably concerned, rightfully so. And then I wrote that pile of trash <laughs> and she read it. And that's when she thought, oh, I'm, we're really in trouble now. <laughs> right. So, and I didn't know how to do this. I, I tried, you know, I tried, I looked at books, but I didn't read any. I just was like, maybe I need a screenwriting book, a how-to. There was all these books. And I remember going to the bookstore and looking at all, it was just this, you know, rows and rows and rows of how to write a screenplay. Yeah, it's a real industry, isn't it? I it, mean, you've got you've got the kind of like Save the Cats or Blake Snyder yeah. sort of school, haven't you? And and I, uh and then there's there's like set taxes and there's like Sid Field and there's there's all these different um you know, there's there's these books you're supposed to read, aren't there, if you're gonna get into this. Right. And that's I mean it's kind of funny that I did a little research on a lot of these people that wrote these books and I realized that not many of them have actually made movies. Yeah. And that immediately, those were alarm bells. And I just thought, I don't know. I've, I've always been a firm believer that art and academia, it's, it's kind of a fuzzy line. I, I don't think you can teach somebody how to be a good storyteller or how to be a good photographer or how to be, you know, good at anything other. You either have this innate ability, raw talent, and you just don't know the tools or the actual specific craft of it. So that was the thing for me is I, I've always been of a yarn spinner as, as you learned when we first met, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, we can, we can have around, uh, around Washington for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, it was, it was something that I had to figure out how to do. And, and I think honestly, the best way to become a proficient or good writer, um, as long as it's you have, it's just, just do it. You know, yeah. and it's, I even read, I read scripts that I've written now. Freebird is now five years old and I read it now and I, I'm very proud of it. I think it's a really good script, but I see all the things now that I go, oh, I could do this so much better. I could make this so much better. And I think that is, you know, it's like that with anything for anybody. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I wrote a couple of really bad scripts and I started a lot of scripts that I didn't finish. I think that happens to a lot of people when they're first starting out, um, especially with writing is there's a lot of strong finishes. I mean, no, strong, yeah. strong starts and not strong finishes. So why, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because once the initial enthusiasm wanes, then it's difficult to actually complete the task because it's so big or is it just a question of like not having the ability to do that? I think it's because it's really hard. You know, we have these romantic ideas in our head of, I want to make movies or, you know, I can only speak as far as screenwriting. I can only guess as far as actual being a novelist or, or any other kind of writer, but writing is really, really hard. It is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the scariest thing I've ever done. And I've done some pretty scary things in my life. And, um, you know, as far as my snowboarding and where I came from, I, I did some frightening, frightening, physically frightening things, but screenwriting, sitting down to a blank page with just a germ of an idea in your head and trying to get that out onto the page is really hard. And I didn't realize how hard it was. I thought, oh, I can talk, I can tell a story. But then when you actually have to convey it uh, in text, it becomes 
very daunting very quickly. And I it's interesting that you use the you talk about in terms of fear. Is that because you're facing the fact that you well the possible fact that you might not be able to do it? Yeah, I think it's that. Um, so it's ego really that you need to overcome. There's a lot of ego. It's and I don't mean ego in a in a puffed up sort of way. I think yeah. I think it's more along the line in a pitiless way almost exactly exactly um am i good enough to do this and i and the thing is is that that feeling never goes away right i've had moderate success you know beginning success with screenwriting i was very fortunate and i'm sure we'll get into the story of how this all happened for me but um still to this day you know nothing puts a pit of fear in your stomach like clicking send (laughs) when you send a first draft to a producer or your agent or a manager, or, well, you don't send a first draft to an agent, but, you know, to anybody who's waiting for this draft that you're working with, the second you hit send, you, you just, it's the most surreal, euphoric, yet terrifying moment for any screenwriter. I imagine any writer who's sending to an editor or a book, book editor or anything. You just, because you're vulnerable, you're putting everything of your emotion out onto a page for somebody else to read and interpret. Well, it's like that whole, I mean, there's, there's a theme about that throughout the whole of creativity, isn't there? You know, at what point do you accept possibly that you're just no good at it, you know, and that maybe you should give up That's or, the, or, or is it, is it the, the, well, no, you have to learn, you have to go through the, the hard times to learn, like you're saying, you know, it's that fine line, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I think I've told people, um, and I, I'm by no means an expert. I don't consider myself. Uh, you know, even though I am a technically a professional screenwriter now, I've been paid to do it. I feel strange sometimes still saying I'm a professional screenwriter, but it is what it is. But the thing that I do say to people that I've met, I guess you would call them aspiring screenwriters, is one of the greatest talents you can have is, or or something in your bag of skill set is sure, it's great to read something of yours or have an idea and know when it's good. It is paramount for somebody to know when they are not good. And I think it's it's great to have belief in yourself. You have to have belief in any, I think in any vocation in life, but there's a lot of people that will waste years and years and years of their life just believing because they want it so bad. Yeah, that, that they will eventually get somewhere and be good enough. Yeah, and we were talking about this last night, actually. That's you know, like that film Inside Lewin, Lewin Davis. Yes, it's kind, of, it's kind of about that, isn't it? It, re- know, it that, really is. That's a great example, actually. You know, it's, you know that 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 film that you know th- that is the subject, isn't it? Like he he just isn't quite good enough. Like he's he's kind of got it, but he's not got it enough. Right, you know? and he's, it's so beautifully played, isn't it? The way they do it. It is. It really is. You know, being having that you know, have, having that ability to, oh yeah, they can do it. But to really shine at something where it makes people stand up and notice, not, not a lot of people pull that off. And, and this is a, you know, in Hollywood, especially it's a, it's an industry of 10% of the people are making hundred percent of the money. Right. And it's really, really hard to get into it. And unlike, you know, the weird thing about screenwriting that I have come to notice and learn is that, It, it is the only industry I can think of in as far as the arts go where I send 
my creation off and other people will actually have a say and, and, and judgment on it and have the power to change it. You know, a painter, that doesn't happen. When you paint and you finally feel like, okay, I'm ready to put this on a wall and put it in a gallery, you know, people can criticize it, but nobody has the right to change it. A photograph is the same way, you know, but filmmaking, like even the directors, directors and screenwriters, like, unless you're an incredibly powerful director, you don't get final cut. The studio will come in and they will say, we want this. We need more love at the end. Uh, We don't want that person to die in the end, you know, or a screenwriter, like I send it off and I have a committee that basically start telling me from producers, you know, first I get notes from managers, then I'll get notes from producers. Then you get notes from a director, notes from a, an actor. And, and it's, it's, you have to get rid of the thin skin very quickly. You know, if, if, if you're precious about your ideas, uh, you're going to, you're going to get chewed up pretty quick. I mean, I'd imagine that's a proper rookie, rookie approach as well. Right. I imagine that's like, you can tell that people, who are new to the game probably find that very difficult, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I went through my learning. Did you, did you find that difficult with, with, with the process? You know, I was very, very fortunate. I kind of have the story that, um, you know, friends that I know or people that I've met who have been grinding, trying to make screenwriting happen for them or, or to get their foot in the door of this business. Um, I'm kind of the story that they just, hate because right. you're that guy. Yeah. I'm kind of that guy and I completely know it. And sometimes I actually not even sometimes all the time I keep thinking, God, when are they going to find out? <laughs> when is everybody going to find out that I really don't know what I'm doing? Right. But, uh, you know, so it's, it, yeah, I was definitely that guy who was, who I think there was a certain amount of luck that went into this what, what was the break then? Well, okay. The, the, the whole story, <laughs> how much time do you have? No, I'll keep it brief. But, you know, like I said, I originally started screenwriting. I was, do, I was directing action sports films for Burton and Quicksilver primarily. And then, you know, the economic collapse happened and everybody's budgets tightened up and I stopped getting work. And, but in that, in the meantime, I put a reel together and started getting work, um, directing TV commercials, which was challenging in itself. Um, but it wasn't really fulfilling to me. I thought it would be this really creative business and it's actually anything but in my opinion, in my experience. So I told myself, you know, I've always wanted to make a movie. I want to do this. I want to tell stories. Uh, I'm going to write something to direct myself. And I went through the painful process of learning how to write a few scripts that were really bad. You had to get the really bad stuff out of me. And, uh, so when Freebird landed, it just, you know, they, you know, that, that saying that people say, when you know, you know, whether it's with somebody that you fall in love with or with a great idea or whatever it is, when you know, something f- feels right, you, you really do feel it. And I believe that. And, and Freebird, that idea kind of landed. So I wrote this script and I remember getting a first draft done a first readable draft, which is about maybe about the second, second actual pass at it. And my wife read it. And my wife is my biggest critic. Oh, she hates everything that I do. <laughs> <laughs> you need, you need one of them though, don't you? <laughs> it's, it's good to have, you know, that's, that is really important not to have, you know, you don't send things to your mom cause she'll just love everything you yeah. do. 
That's great. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Love it. But to have somebody actually tell you, oh God, this is, you know, maybe you should think of doing something else. But she read this and she said, you know, I think you have something here. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, how am I going to get this financed? I had no idea. And I had a friend. Well, I have a friend. She She's an editor for documentary films. And she had just documented, uh, edited this documentary that um, Billy Bob Thornton had directed on Willie Nelson. And I, I thought he would be great to play for the role. Could you pass the script along? And she said she would give it to his assistant. I never heard anything. You know, that happens all the time. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll read it. But they never read it because those people have so much on their plate already. My wife comes home one day and says a friend of a friend that she works with um, is putting, they're trying to be a screenwriter and they're putting it into a screenwriting competition. Have you thought of that? I, I didn't really know much about screenwriting competitions, but that sounded awful to me. And, uh, but she said, no, this one's done by the Academy, you know, the, the Motion Picture Academy. Uh, so I looked into it and it's called the Nickel Fellowship. And I thought, oh, well, this kind of looks legitimate. So I see that they only have about 30 days for the cutoff for that year. And I go, oh, I don't have a, I don't have a, a rewrite done yet. I, I, it needs to be fixed. I try to get a rewrite done. So I tried and tried, tried to get it finished. And I got about halfway done. And I was like, well, I guess that's that. And my wife says, just send it in anyways. What do you got to lose? I thought, okay. So I sent it in and I made it down to their top 30 out of 9,000 people worldwide. And, and that was a big validation. You know, it was a big, a big pat on my back thinking, wow, maybe I kind of do know what I'm doing or at least at this one time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I tri- That's amazing. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was really, and then from there, uh, you know, they share the, the semifinalists, the list of semifinalists with all these agents, producers, and managers in the industry. And sometimes they call you, sometimes they don't. I, all of a sudden within a week of that, I had probably about a hundred emails come in from all these Amazing. different people asking to either, you know, for a log line, which is just a one sentence describing the film, or they would ask for the script as a whole. And, and, um, I landed a manager through that. And from that, point uh, a producer was attached and then he took it to another producer named Gil Netter who produced Life of Pi Blindside he's a huge two-time Academy Award nominated producer he read it and loved the script and said I want to make this movie so he came on board how'd that feel <laughs> it was uh, euphoric yeah and that must have been a big moment that must have been like okay I can could you enjoy that yeah it was it was really I was kind of shaking my head. I keep calling Freebird the little script that could because, like I said, I didn't know. I didn't. I, it, it's not a giant commercial film. It's not a blockbuster. It's not one that opens on a weekend and just, you know, makes millions no, and millions of can, dollars. I mean, I've I've read it, and you can you can see it though. And also, it's really what I find about it, it's like really controlled. You know, the pacing of it is is, is so. You seem very on top of it all the way through because I was really wondering how it was gonna play out because there's a fairly obvious cliched ending that could happen with that film and you avoided it really really well and they all tied together so so cleverly and and sort of emotion in an an emotionally satisfying way that i think it's it was a really satisfying read so i can completely see why people that must just have to fucking fight through the dross you know to sit to have something like that 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 did connect i'm sure yeah uh, 
it, you know, it was great I, for them as well. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for um, the kind words. And you know that I think that's the thing is, I tapped into something about Freebird. What it really taught me is because that's when I started writing drama, and I realized that you know the heart is everything of a movie. Uh, I didn't understand that when I first tried a, a couple of different ideas. And, and it was this one where you find that one pure idea and it just, I don't know, it just, it came out of me so easily. It was, I hate to say effortless because it was a lot of work, but that idea was, I knew it right from the beginning, the, the beginning, the middle and the end were just so clear to me. And so you could, did you have the end in from the start then? I did. I always, I always start with, uh, honestly, most of my uh, spec ideas, I know, the end. I know the ending before anything. I see how this ending goes and, and how it would make you feel and if it'll make people's eyes water or your heart ache, or I, I somehow start from that and, right. and then build backwards. Because okay. f- for me, uh, if I don't know where I'm going, I'm, I have no idea how to get there. Yeah. The reverse engineering is, is what works for me. Everybody has a different process, I think. So, um, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I wrote this that, that connected with people and I think it struck a chord with, uh, it, it will strike a chord with anybody, whether you're into motorcycles or not, because it's not about the motorcycles. It's about these human beings and the connections they have with each other. And that really, it's about, t- getting, it's about getting old as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's about our, you know, the, the themes of this are you know, about getting old, about, what our footprint is, what we leave behind, our legacy, uh, and love, you know? So there's some pretty universal themes there and it taught me more than anything. And I will be the first to admit that I probably fluked into some of those themes, at, during the process of writing it. But in, in that moment of fluke, I learned something very, very important about screenwriting and, and, uh, and so, yeah, it just, you know, it really resonated how, with how people. Would you, how would you characterize that then? How would I characterize the... What you learned about screenwriting through going through that process, that, that the work creates connections? Is that is that kind of what you mean? Well, you know, I don't know about... Everybody, I think, comes to that understanding in different ways. Like I said, I didn't come through it via academia. Um, I did after I started Free, but I did start... Uh, I took a course, this one course, there's a, here in Los Angeles, uh, over in Santa Monica, there's, uh, I don't want to call it a screenwriting school, but it's called writer's Boot Camp, And it's a very intense, uh, workshop type environment. There's no classes as far as, you know, you go once a week and it's for like a year and you go once a week and, and it just taught me specific craft of screenwriting and it opened up my eyes a lot to structure, you know, how to structure something out where low points happen, where midpoints happen, what that means and, and how to time that and pace that. And that definitely helped with Freebird because my very first draft uh, didn't have that as much. So then I realized, okay, there are certain things that need to happen by certain timeframes of a screenplay. But it doesn't teach you the story. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't teach you. You know, they the onus is on you to find 
that thing, those ingredients that are going to make people want to keep watching or want to keep reading. And that's what, like going back to when you, you know, about finding that emotional connection to the script. I, I wrote pages in that where I got goosebumps and that's when I knew something was right. And finding theme is probably the hardest thing you can do in, in screenwriting. I think probably in any form of writing. And, and a lot of times people don't even know how to identify what theme is. And so by going through the process of Freebird, it really taught me how to find that theme through emotional connection. So the, the, so the theme became apparent the more you worked on it. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Which must have been a great feeling because earlier you said it was, you know, one of the early on in the conversation, you said, oh, it's, it's one of the scariest things I've ever done, if not the most terrifying thing I've ever done. But those moments must be, you must be able to enjoy those moments. Yeah, I do. You know, I have these moments when I'm writing, when I write some pages, when I finally get into page work, which takes me a long time to, on my own material, it takes me a long time to get to actual dialogue and page work. Before that, I'm, I outline rigorously and, and, um, but did I say rigorously or vigorously? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll fix that in the edit. Uh, that's, that's another example. I'm not a very, you know, education as far as literature. I never, I was never a, a literary person. I've read a lot, but I make mistakes. Oh, my grammar is horrible. It's a good thing I have, you know, a, a script editor because I'll tell you my spelling and grammar is atrocious. But that's that's another thing, though. It does it that doesn't matter. You know, it matters yes. when you when you send the final draft to producers or studio heads to read. You know, you want to have that all buttoned up, and I'm getting better at it. But <laughs> but the important part is to have that story that resonates with everybody, because you know we see this this thing that's happening in Hollywood now, where it's just this giant blockbuster fest, and a lot of times, you know, they really land it. They make it, they make it universally relatable, you know, even a superhero film because they had a writer who understood those, identified those themes. But, um, that's the thing is when we go see the movies, it's an escape, but we still need to relate to those characters somehow. And, and that's, that's something that, uh, I learned early on and, and have tapped in on was identifying those relatable themes and emotional chords that strike through everybody. So where, where are you now in this, in this, uh, in the life cycle of Freebird? So it's a couple of years, isn't it? Since you kind of got this representation and, and you've been talking to producers and am I right in thinking you've been talking to actors as well about roles? Yeah, we, um, Come on, give us some names. I, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> a lot of people read it and a lot of people liked it. And, you know, a lot of people passed on it and that, that happens. And that's a weird one. You know, that's the weird thing is when everybody first is reading it and this is happening, I get signed with an agency and I get, I get it, you know, I option it with a financing company and I have this big producer who, you know, attaches to produce it. And, you know, they, they initially asked me, do you want to direct this? And I, I would, you know, I played nice. I, I said, do you? Are you asking me if I want to or if I expect to? Because I thought if, if I came at it saying, no, this is my movie, I want to. And I expect to direct this this movie. It's mine or nothing. I think they probably would have been like, eh, okay, that's a pretty uphill battle. Yeah. Um, I wanted to play nice. And I had I'd become a new father. 
And I thought, you know, I just got to work. I just got to get, get my foot, keep going, moving into this. But like, you know, I was standing outside the door of the party right there and I was being let in. Yeah. And I just wanted to make sure that I could stay in the party. Yeah, sure. So I played nice and uh, we were sending it out to all these directors and actors and we had all these ideas and that was really fun. You know, going into <laughs> sitting with these very high powered agents who are now my agents and us having a discussion of who I would like to be in the movie. That was a surreal, like dreamlike moment. Who who were your, uh, your guys? Who did you want to be in it? Did oh, you write it with that in mind or is that, is that not really? You know, I, you know, when I initially wrote it, it was going to be this really small, dark indie movie, like a one to $2 million movie that I thought, okay, I'll be able to raise that money. And I had, you know, like I said, I thought, oh, Billy Bob Thornton would be great. He's, he's great at playing that crusty kind of old cowboy style American, you know, rough around the edges guy. But, um, and I had sort of a six degrees of separation connection with him that I thought maybe I could get him to read it. Never heard anything. But outside of that, I never really had a specific idea. Um, and I don't know if I really want to say some of the names that were possibilities that happened because, you know, it, we had a really big star attached at one point who, you know, I didn't feel was right for it. I loved the actor. Uh love him in everything that he does really fun, but I just didn't see it. And it was right. real, it was a real struggle. And I, you know, I played nice though, because having that person attached can mean a lot of freedoms as far as getting financing, getting, getting larger financing. And so, you know, we tried going with that for a while, but then we all realized that the, it wasn't the right fit. And, um, the current, the current, uh, attachment is, I think going to be perfect but yeah. you know, these things change. So I, I'm, I'm, I have trepidation of actually saying who it is because then the sure. next thing you know, that person doesn't do it. And you know, like these, it's strange how these things can change at the 11th hour, which I'm learning. Well, it's, it sounds like, you know, almost 80% of the game is, is this part of it, you know? It, it is. The thing that is astounding to me is, you know, I, I have this saying, everything moves at the speed of Hollywood in right. this town. And you know, it, it moves at a snail's pace until it doesn't. Yeah. I was listening to this Darren Aronofsky interview the other day and he was saying that like, it's crazy. He was like, oh yeah, I had the idea for Noah like 20 years ago. You know, I had my first conversation about Black Swan like 15 years ago. Yeah. And he's no. like, yeah, that's just how long it takes. No, it's, it's, I mean, definitely there are movies that get, you know, that term, the green light, they get green lit and it's put into production right away. Because they have, you know, sometimes they start movies and they get them into pre-production before they even have a script. It's insane. But those are usually giant blockbuster movies with big attachments and it's a lot of flash. But that's a different proposition, isn't it, I guess? That's what that's, that is almost just a, an entertainment property, isn't it, really? That's, that's a business in its own. Uh, you yeah. know, you, you, go on to, you go on to IMDb Pro and you look at, say, Warner Brothers and look at their list of films in development and it's hundreds and it's, it's just astounding to me. I'm like, what, when are they going to make all these movies? And you look at the list of them and it's, it's insane. And you, you know, you know that these are all going to be giant, giant budget films, but this is not that, you know, Freebird is a, is a smaller movie and, and we're doing it independently of a studio. And, uh, 
but yeah, it still took, you know, it's coming on its fifth year since I wrote that last draft and we have the financing, we have a star, we have, you know, and now we're talking about directors again, which is where I'm finally coming back saying, okay, I think I'm going to put my hat in that ring. Right. And, uh, but you know, seeing as I'm an unproven director, as far as directing any narrative material, uh, I have to kind of prove myself. So I've taken it upon myself to, I'm currently in the process of, of directing a, I guess it's, yeah, like we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, it's a sort of short film, a yeah, little, a little to, chunk. To I've taken, yeah, to sort of show this is my vision yeah. for the movie. This is what I can do. And what do you think? So yeah. it's a gamble. They, you know, my producer knows I'm doing it. The financiers don't and the star doesn't yet, but I kind of want it that way. And I just want to do it and hand it to them and say, this is what I did. What do you think? Like, can we talk about me directing it? And if, if the conversation opens up, great. If they say, I think we're going to still try to talk to some other directors, that's fine too. I just, I just want it to get made. Well, also you're going to be, that's just going to push it forward, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, but it, it takes forever to get these movies made. You know, it's, it's, it's shocking how long it takes. I remember hearing when I first started doing this, oh, on average about five years, I thought really five years, but that's where I'm at right now. We're very close. So, but you know, once you have all the elements in place, the next thing you know, it's moving at a very quick pace. Yeah. You know, you're in pre-production, you're in, and the next thing you know, you're shooting and then you're, you know, so it's, who knows? Yeah. Well, you've mentioned it a couple of times, the, uh, the snowboarding career. Uh, and as we, as we mentioned earlier, you know, me and you know each other through snowboarding, really. So yeah. I think it'd be, it'd be great to, because this is, uh, you mentioned to me yesterday when we were talking that this is your third career. You know, you've talked about Hollywood, you've talked about the, the commercial work that you did, but your first career is obviously uh, pro snowboarder. Yeah. Um, yeah that- <laughs> which is when I first uh, knew of you, really. So, so Let's talk about that because this yeah. is no small career in snowboarding. I think it's fair to say, even though you're going to massively downplay it, I imagine. But, uh, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I I will and I won't. But the one thing I will say about snowboarding, without snowboarding, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And it sounds very cliche, but snowboarding gave me everything that I have to this day. So I owe everything to my snowboarding career. And I, I love that it, it was a part of my life, you know, so... So you, you're a Canadian, right? I am a Canadian, although I did just get, you know, please Canadians forgive me, but I did just get my U.S. citizenship as well. So I'm a dual citizen. Right. Oh, what time to I know to, to jump into that ring. <laughs> Believe me, uh, when, we, when we did it, well, we did it because I've been down here for 20 years now and I have children that were born here. And yeah. my wife and I thought, well, do we keep getting the green cards or do we just do that and get it done? And yeah. uh and so we did it, but all my American friends, when I said that I was getting my U.S. citizenship, they all looked at me funny and said, why? <laughs> you know, it was, they were joking and everybody was very happy for me. It's, it's cool. Like I'm, I, like I say, I'm like Jason Bourne now. I have multiple passports. Yeah, right. But Handy uh, thing to have in this day and age. It, it, in this current, you know, climate and social arena, it, these days it's, uh, it's a strange thing to want to get my U.S. citizenship, but yeah, you know, I am. So, so yeah. So where about, whereabouts in Canada are you from? Um, I'm from Calgary. I, I grew up for 
my younger years in a suburb of Vancouver called Port Moody. And uh, I loved it. It was a great place to grow up and then moved to Calgary when we were, I was about 11, 12 and lived there until, you know, I graduated high school and, uh, and moved back to Whistler immediately. And, you know, because I was snowboarding while I was in high school, I was actually a pro snowboarder. I became a pro in my, like, I think my, I think 10th grade, I think it was 10th grade, something like that. So give me an era. When was this? Like late eighties? Oh, oh, late eighties? Oh, you're you're aging me out here? Like you're? Well, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to. <laughs> yeah, it was the it was the eighties. It was the eighties yeah. when I first started. Uh, when I first became a pro, and but how did you get into snowboarding then? Just through just through the like living know, in the snow. Yeah, well, I was I was a ski racer. I was a little ski racer kid and a skier kid, and I grew up skiing with my family. And there was uh, in Canada, there was uh, you know a legendary Olympic ski racer named Nancy Green. And she had this Nancy Green ski, uh, ski racing school, ski racing team, little junior team and everything. And I was on that for a couple of years and, and it was really fun. And uh, I remember going up to, there's a ski resort outside of Calgary called Sunshine Village. And I was up there with my sister. We went up skiing one weekend and there was this, guy on a snowboard. And I was a little skate punk. I got into skateboarding from a very young age. And I saw this guy on a snowboard. I, I'd never seen it before. I remember just being blown away seeing it go, oh my God, look at that. And, um, I just being the type of person that I am, I just rolled up on him in, in the lift line and asked him about it. His name was Neil Defern, and he let me try it. He goes, Oh, you want to give it a try? He gave me his boots and everything. And I was like, yeah. So I tried it. I couldn't do it, but I was hooked right from that moment. And I went home telling my parents about it. I was like, I want to snowboard. And they, you know, at that time, nobody snowboarded. Yeah. Right. You couldn't really get them either. Could you? Not really. You know, like I didn't know anything about it really. I didn't know that at that time that Burton actually was a company Yeah. um, or Sims was a company. So my parents wouldn't, you know, cause I was a ski, uh, you know, ski racer and a ski family and, my mom thought it was just one of my little f- ideas that was just a fad that was going to go away. Right. And so I made my own, fir- my first snowboard in wood shop in school. I Brilliant. Yeah, I took plywood and I made a mold with my shop teacher and I made this first board and I put these, bolted these straps that go over your feet. You know, I could go down the hills of Calgary in the snow straight, but I couldn't turn. Yeah. But I, I was hooked. I could not do this. So my parents saw that and they finally bought me a, a Sims 1500 FE for Christmas. Or was it my birthday? Maybe it was my birthday. And it just went from there. And I, that Neil DeFern, who uh, unfortunately he he died in a helicopter crash years later. But um, yeah, we became friends and I, I hooked up with Ken Achenbach from the snowboard shop. Uh, legendary Ken Achenbach. People, yeah, right. Yeah, Camp people, of Champions. Yeah, Camp of Champions. I Before that, like his first shop, as far as I know, he had the first retail store that sold snowboards. Right. And, and it was- uh, He's like like legit OG snowboard oh, legend is, in Canada, isn't he? He's a, he is a, he is a snowboard icon and a legend. I mean, he is, he's done more for the sport of snowboarding than I think even snowboarding realizes. Yeah. And He's like perfect for this podcast, actually. He actually would be great. He would be yeah. great for this podcast. But, you know, when I say I owe everything to snowboarding, I really owe everything to Ken Achenbach. I will 
to this day say, I'm, I'm a screenwriter because of Ken Achenbach, you know, and that sounds funny to connect those threads, but it's true. You know, he, he had this shop out of his garage. He turned his garage into an actual retail store in a suburb of Calgary. <laughs> and I remember going there and I'd go and just hang out. And then it got to the point where he would every weekend, he would take all his shop kids and we'd all go snowboarding in his van. He had this Volkswagen van. Right. He'd be there at eight o'clock and, you know, or seven 30, no, not a minute sooner, not a minute later. And we'd all get his van, drive up and snowboard. And then he kind of started hooking me up. And then he, he connected me to, uh, Chuck Barfoot, Barfoot right. snowboards. Cause you had, you had a pro model on Barfoot, didn't you? I did. I did. I had a few, but, uh, that was my first one. And I remember, uh, he first got me on the flow program with Barfoot and, Ken used to do this snowboard competition called the North American Cha- uh, Snowboard Championships. And everybody would come up from the States, Craig Kelly, Keith Wallace, Terry Kidwell, all these guys, these legends came up and they, you know, they weren't even legends yet. You know, they were just the crew. Like everybody knew everybody back then. Yeah. And these guys would all come up from Washington and California. And some guys would come over from Vermont and, and he'd have this contest and it was just this fun time. And, uh, I remember, you know, winning my junior division for the half pipe and Chuck Barfoot said he's going to start giving me boards. Well, geez, that's, that changed my life. I couldn't believe it. it was like, I'm, I'm going to get free snowboards, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was pretty incredible. How old were you at this point? Oh, 16, maybe. I think it was 16. Wow, what a, what a scene. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, Craig Kelly, Duck oh, Boy. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Like, it was, and then, you know, the the Burton crew would come over from the East Coast and there was this weird rivalry, but it was still cool. Like, we, it wasn't like East Coast, West Coast rap. It wasn't anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you know, it was, you know, because Burton was all legit. They had this, they had their uniforms and their team and they had all this stuff and it was just you know, we were all kind of, I mean, I remember used to, we used to take, they didn't have actual snowboard boots yet. So we would take Sorrells and I'd put old ski boot liners in them and I would duct tape the ski boot liners like crazy. So they were stiffer and that would give you <laughs> more support. I mean, we were really ragtag back then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember you had to pass a test with the ski hill to get your snowboard pass. It was almost like a driver's license. Right. That, that uh, showed that you could turn both ways and stop both ways on your toe and heel edge to have control. And then they'd let you go on the ski hill. That's so funny. I mean, you know, it, it was different times. Yeah. It was a, it was much different times. So yeah, I did. And then, you know, I stayed with Barfoot for forever. I got offered, I almost went to Sims at one point because they were, things were getting larger and larger, but that was years later. And, uh, but Barfoot was like a family to me. Chuck was like a, he was like an uncle, you know, he was, he was, He's this really cool Southern California surfer guy. And, and he gave me my first sort of break and hookup. So I had this thing about loyalty. I've always been a very loyal person. And, but uh, yeah, I stayed with him for a while. And then when the company started getting bigger and bigger and, and when pro models started happening, uh, you know, Kidwell was the first. And then Craig Kelly I think his came out next and then uh, Palmer, Sean Palmer and myself, ours came out at the same time. 
So yeah, essentially, I guess I was kind of about the third person to have that's, a, a pro that's model. That's pretty good company. I, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't really complain. I don't know if I was in the same league as them, but, but I got it and I took it. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, obviously I got into snowboarding probably like 88, 89. Yeah. Well, I first heard of it anyway. Yeah. You know, living in Manchester, you didn't exactly get to go snowboarding really. Right. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember seeing your ads in the, in the mags back in yeah. the day. Yeah. Those ads, my long shaggy hair, all that. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I it's funny, isn't it? Cause I, I texted you the other week cause I was going through some old like school books of mine. Right. And I, at my mum's house and found this, went, and there's a few snowboarding pics I'd put in there. One of them was an ad that you'd done with Dano, I think. Yeah. Like, like would it be an airwalk ad or something? I think it was an airwalk ad. Yeah. 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 So when I'm we're gonna... in, up, up on the glacier at uh, the Camp of Champions. Yeah. That would be like 91. Something Such like a funny that. little coincidence that. But anyway, I'm going to put yeah. that on the, on the website because it's still... Still stands up that backside air. Yeah, sure. that was that was my that was my jam. I could I could do methods. I could do backside airs. That was I don't even think I could do them anymore. <laughs> when was the last time you went riding? I went last season. Yeah, you know, I, I I try to go uh, Mount Baldy. It's local mountain here. Like Mount Baldy's amazing. It's about about an hour from my doorstep in Southern California, and you can be in bottomless powder. Well, it's, you had quite a winter, didn't you? Yeah, we did. I mean, it's incredible. So I went there and I, I, you know, I'll be honest, I don't get to snowboard as much as I'd like to because kids and you get older and it's, I don't live in a mountain town anymore. So and yeah. I have other things I'm trying to do, but uh, I try to go at least, at least get a few days in every season. This winter though, I'm going to go back up to Canada and do a trip and do a lot more riding. But yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because I, the <laughs> the last time I went, uh, I went with some friends and I think that actually the last time I went was at Bear Mountain, which is unfortunate because I can't stand going up there because it's just too crowded. But uh, they have this, you know, the snow parks now are insane. And my friend says, let's take a run through the park. And I said, there's no way you're getting me through that fucking park <laughs> <laughs> because I know too much that I would go off one jump and get that little bug and I would think that I could still do it but I probably would slam and break my wrist or something like that. And I just, there's no way I want to do that now. Nah, cruising. No. It's all yeah. about the cruise. It's all cruising now. Yeah. I'm going yeah, yeah, to be the definitely. old cruiser. Yeah. But so, yeah. So what are your, what are your standout memories from those days? So how, how long were you, were you sort of a pro then? So that's sort of like six, seven years. Yeah. But about that, you know, I, I had a few models with Barfoot <laughs> and then I was going to go to Burton. They were kind of offering at the time there was, there was this guy, Paul Alden, and he took over Burton and was creating this massive team. And it was like really professional. And he was kind of getting in my ear and he was talking to, like, they were grabbing everybody and building this global team that was kind of incredible. And I, I was thinking, God, do I want to be a part of that? Do I want to be a part of that? But they weren't going to give me a model and I already had a model. So I was like, why would I do that? Yeah. Why, why would I leave having my own model and and being able to design my own board to just being one of many? So I didn't go. And, it, you know, I probably gave up a lot of money for the time. You know, I, I didn't make the kind of money that they make now. Um, now it's like this giant thing. Like you can be a proper professional snowboarder and make millions of dollars. 
I was not making millions of dollars. Literal, I was making literally tens of dollars. But uh, you know, it was it wasn't about that back then. You know, it was the and you know, you asked about my fondest memories, the standout memories. Getting in Ken's van, and we'd all trek down to Breckenridge, Colorado, for uh, you know these big competitions, and we'd hook up with everybody. It was just more about going there and. I didn't give a shit if I won or not. You know, I, I very rarely qualified. I'd always fuck up in the practice. You know, I'd kill it in practice and then I'd fuck up in my first run and slam or something and I'd choke. And, uh, but I, I didn't care. It was just fun going down and seeing everybody and reconnecting with everybody and, and just being there and being part of it. It was this, I don't know, it was infectious. It was this community, this club. It was really fun. Do you think it's lost something these days with the change? You know, I don't want to be that salty older guy that's saying, oh, you know, waving my finger at the youth yeah, of today saying- back, back in my day. Yeah, back in my day, because it's still an incredible thing, but everything, it's not even just snowboarding. Everything is about branding now. You know, people brand themselves. I didn't brand, we didn't brand ourselves back then. I had a model, but it was just because you were good enough to have one, you know, and, and you had a personality that kind of- maybe helped with selling it. And now it's, it's just, everything is branding. Everything is just TV shows. Everything is, I don't know. I don't know how to put my finger on it, but I mean. Well, it's too much. There is too too much. It's just too too much much. stuff. There's too much stuff to watch. You know, and you watch, you watch the, uh, I watch the contests once in a while. Now I'll watch the X games or the do tour and I'll, I'll watch it on TV. And after about 10 minutes, I kind of glaze over because I can't tell anybody apart. They all do the exact same thing. It's like gymnastics. Yeah. Well, it's the perpetual debate these days, isn't it? In snowboarding, how you, uh, how you sort of get, try and reclaim some of the lost soul, if you like, or well, style above, above all. That's the thing. It's like, you know, and I don't want to downplay anybody's ability. They're amazing snowboarders now. And I don't even know half of them anymore because, you know, once you step off that merry-go-round, it really keeps spinning and you're gone. And I, when I walked away from action sports, you know, I told myself I need to make a clean break and not try to do both. And I, I wanted to just, move on and do something different. And, and, and I had this great time in my life with snowboarding and I'll always have that, but I, I wanted to do something new. So when I stepped away from it, I mean, I couldn't tell you who the superstars of snowboarding are anymore. You know, it was you, like, you had, a, you had an influence on the next generation coming up though, right? I don't know if I did. I mean, but you, but you definitely, am I right in thinking that you kind of mentored a few people like, you know, I'm thinking sort of Devin Walsh was, was, was coming up yeah. when you were around, wasn't he maybe? Yeah. I mean, mentored, that might be a bit, bit strong, of a, bit of a stretch, you know, <laughs> I'll let somebody else label me with that. But, uh, yeah, like Devin, you know, I was, that was just sort of my thing. I was, I was, I guess I wasn't a rookie anymore. I had a, a few pro models with Barfoot and. I was uh, kind of, you know, getting into film production. I was like really into the making of snowboard videos. And and I remember, you know, seeing Devin and this kid. I mean, he was just this kid. Oh, God, he was maybe 15. I, maybe he was younger. I can't remember. He was so fucking good. Yeah. You know, he just had 
Did he have the style then? Oh my God. He had so much style. He just had natural ability. And you know, when you see somebody, it doesn't matter what sport or anything, you just see somebody and you know that they've got it. Yeah. That's a theme in this podcast actually that keeps keeps coming up. Which yeah. you know, it's a truism for action sports, isn't it? It really yeah. And and I mean, I thought to myself, this kid needs to be hooked up. Not even just hooked up, he needs to be shepherded into you know, a really good place in snowboarding. And I remember, you know, they, they had this new guy running barfoot at the time. And I said, we need to get this kid on and we need to give him a model. And they were like, you're crazy. You know? And I was like, no, I'm not. This kid's going to be huge. We need to give him a model. We need to do it right now. We need to start working on prototypes and get like lock him in because he's going to be, he's going to be something. And they kind of, you know, we kind of started getting it going and I took him down. I brought him down here to, uh, we did this shoot in at snow summit and bear mountain with like the ride team ride was just kind of happening. It was like, you know, Devin and, and Nate Cole was there, I think, and Russell Winfield, Jason Ford and, and, uh, Dale Rayberg. And we brought Devin down with us and we did this shoot and he was just, you know, he stood on his own. You know, like he, he was this young kid that was just blowing our minds. And unfortunately, you know, the guy that was running Barford at the time, you know, at this point it wasn't Chuck really overseeing the marketing aspects of it. He was still the guy, but this new guy, I mean, I'm not going to mention, I don't want to call him out, but, uh, he didn't really see it. And we kind of balked on that. And, you know, Devin was immediately swept up in, the world of DC was coming out, you know, DC and, and special blend. And, and then I think shorties started making boards or something. I can't remember who really first started pushing him, but, uh, and he, he moved on and I don't blame him. You know, it was, it was smart for him to do it because it, uh, it made him a superstar and it also probably made him a really good amount of money and gave him a great life. And, and he's, he's awesome though. He's still like, we still connect on Instagram once in a while and, He's very gracious and has often said same things like you said. And I, I take it. It's really complimentary, but I, Devin's one of those kids that would have just, he would have been a shining star regardless if I was there or not. Still killing it. Yeah. I mean, that blows my mind. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I have so much admiration for anybody who can still, you know, it's even like Todd Richards, Todd and I, Todd and I are pretty much the same age and he's still amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, but he lives it. He's, he's like that kid that never grows up, you know, he's, he just won't grow up. And, and I love that about Todd. He's, he's awesome. So the filmmaking progressed f- through snowboarding by the sounds of it. Yeah. I, I was filmed by Warren Miller, you know, back then there weren't a lot of snowboard films. The first, the first guy that ever filmed me was a cameraman from Warren Miller when he made those ski films and they put that token snowboard section in it. And I, I made it into a couple of his movies, which was a really big deal back then. And yeah, then, well, they were huge, those films, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They were like proper movies, you know, film cameras, everything. And then, um, and then you know, Mac Dog came along and he made his super little ghetto high eight video camera videos, but they were really progressive. I remember they came out, we were like, oh my God, it was like skateboarding on snow. And it was just, it was incredible to us. It was so punk rock and like great music and it was faster paced and it wasn't, wasn't all dreamy. It was just, it was kind of 
what snowboarding started as. It was a, you know, snowboarding was kind of a rebellion away from skiing. It was like something different. Yeah. And, um, so he started doing that. And I remember I wanted to do that as well. I was like, I want to make videos of us. And I went to Japan. I was like one of the first snowboarders to go to Japan. And they used to be like so gracious. They still are. They're such a gracious people. But I remember the distributor that brought us over there. Wow. That was like my first feeling of what it might must feel like to be a rock star. Like I showed up there and they had this celebration and they gave us gifts for coming. And one of them was this video camera. Right. They, they wow. bought, they bought me this awesome Sony video camera and gave it to me. And I was like, Oh my God. And, uh, there was this shop called stormy, which I think is still there. And they took us there to do an autograph signing. I'd never signed autographs. I was like, what? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. And we showed up in this bus and there was a lineup down the street. Right. And they, and they had all these posters of me that I'd never seen of photographs. I'd, I'd never seen of me. And I, and I sat there and I signed autographs and these people were just squealing and screaming and like wanting to take pictures with me. And it was, Brilliant. it was amazing. I just thought it was a high. I was like, I'm famous. Look at me. Big in Japan. <laughs> I'm big in, <laughs> you know, I'm, I was big in Japan. And uh, so, yeah, when I came home with that camera, then I started making little videos and, uh, and then I got filmed also by Greg Stump, who was also a big, he made some more wow, edgy. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I became friends with Stumpy a little bit, you know. And I haven't. Do you seen still her. know him? No, he's he's on the list for this as well. I I don't know him anymore. And I, I filmed with him one day. It was like I think Damien Sanders and I filmed with him and and uh, Blizzard got, of Oz. Yeah, yeah. And I got to know him and and you know he was he was a really cool weird guy. He was really yeah, funny right. and strange, you know. And and so. I, and then there was a, a film company in Canada called Rap Films, Real Action Pictures. What a great name. <laughs> and, right. You know, so That's I can- That's so 90s. Yeah, it is. It's really 90s. And this guy named John Long, who was one of the directors and their executive producers and directors, and uh, they made ski films. And I convinced them, I said, you know, we need to make a snowboard movie. And they weren't really sure about it, but I said, no, there, there's a market for this, like, you need to make this snowboard movie. And I convinced them to do it. We got, we raised all this sponsorship money and made this big production called it's the source. And I got no credit. <laughs> I got really? no, That was my first time learning, like not getting any kind of directing credit. It wasn't even a co-director. Like, you know, whatever. I was a kid. I was Hard still lessons that no doubt coming in handy these days. Oh yeah. I learned very quickly about credit right there. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. So that progressed. We made a bunch of snowboard movies over the years. And I, I, I kind of was at that time, I was becoming less enamored about being in front of the camera as I was, you know, about being behind the camera and right. snow, snowboarding was changing. You know, it was like things were changing and uh, it really got into this, this skate style which I thought yeah. was awesome, but it wasn't really me. I liked really big airs. I liked big mountain stuff. I liked real snowboarding. I didn't like standing around in a parking lot, pushing into a handrail. Yeah. Probably because I couldn't do it very well. <laughs> you know, I, uh, that, but I just wasn't my thing. I, so I started making the films and left rap films and made a few of my own movies and they did okay because, you know, like I, I liked making the films, but I wasn't very good at selling the films. Right. You know, which I've, I've learned that that's also a good talent to have. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it, and it progressed. And then Burton started bringing me into 
shooting on their photo shoots. And then I directed a few commercials for them and then Quicksilver. And so, yeah, it just sort of progressed along into this film career. And, uh, you know, as I grew older and got more mature, I, I, I wrote some articles for trans world snowboarding magazine and interviewed a few people. And, and I started understanding the value of storytelling. So you see, there's this natural progression of like being in yeah, front of yeah. the camera to like getting a video camera to making my own little films to then understanding things about credit and story to then going, you know, I want to, I want to do something bigger than just snowboarding. And I don't mean bigger in the sense that snowboarding small and insignificant. I just mean bigger for me. It was, it was expanding my own knowledge because I never went to school. I didn't go to college. Uh, I didn't get a degree in, in literature or film or anything like that. I've just by happenstance landed where I am through life experience. Well, and, and hard work. Let's not, let's not. Um, yeah. Yeah. That. Hard work, a lot of failures, a lot of. And trying you know, things. Yeah. Trying things, learning curve. Yeah. A- and even with my screenwriting, I'm still, uh, you know, of course I did take a, a, a course that is probably the equivalent of maybe reading a book. If I wanted to actually read a fucking book sometime, you know, that, that like a how-to book, how-to books are just bizarre to me. So yeah, it was, it was all happenstance and, and learning by process. Yeah. It's e- even well, my snowboarding, it's the same as snowboarding, you know, screenwriting for me is, is the same as snowboarding is it's a learning by process, learning by falling down, learning by error. Yeah. And those victories that happen, like when you, you know, back then stomping a 720, I remember the first time I stomped a 720, I, I, I mean, it was euphoric. Yeah. And with my writing, when I now, as you know, you get older and more mature and your mind becomes more sophisticated as far as knowledge, you, you know, the, the, the euphoric victories that you have are different arena, a different arena, but still the same feeling. I mean, in the in the classic John August tradition, that is a brilliant segue to uh, <laughs> to to bring us to to you know what what we are. We're about we're, wow, we're about an hour and ten minutes in. Yeah, it's I gone can pretty quick. I can go as long as you want. You know, I'm not a talker. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. Um, but what, so where are you now? I mean, because so, you've you've just adapted the White Tiger, right? Yeah, you know. So so that's the book. Of, who, who remind me who wrote it? It's the Booker winner, isn't it? Yeah, man, uh, man Booker Prize. Well, here I'll I'll give you a uh, I'll give you a little um, timeline. So Freebird that opened up the doors. You know, like I said, I was uh, I was in the party, and from there, the first thing that they do is they start sending you on meetings, and it's insane the amount of meetings that you go on. They send you to meetings at studios with studio heads, executives, producers, all these people just to sort of introduce you to the town. And some of them have open writing assignments, but I've since learned that getting open writing assignments is very, very difficult. You know, like I said, 10% of the people are making a hundred percent of the money. So what's an open, what's an open writing assignment? It's like, it's like the, it's like the white tiger, you know, somebody has optioned a book, a producer has optioned a book and and, And they need a writer for an existing project. And they want, they want somebody that's going to adapt that book or they have an article or like a magazine article or an anecdote or anything or a comic book or, and they want a screenwriter to turn that into a movie, you know, a readable movie. And, you know, so, you know, they send me on all these meetings and, uh, one of the first meetings was with a producer named Jim Whitaker. 
and he's at Disney and he, he produced, you know, he used to be, I think a producer for Ron Howard and, and he produced a lot of very, very big movies, great films. And we got along really great. Cause it's this, you know, it's like anything, uh, it's not just your ability to write, but it's also people looking at you going, do I want to work with this person? Yeah. You know, because they, it's a personality game. Like, cause you're, you're working with somebody for years. And if it's, if you're a nightmare, well, fuck, they don't want to work with you. <laughs> so hence play nice. Yeah. You know, play nice and, and don't be a dick. And yeah, if you're going to be arrogant, you better have the chops to back it up. Um, but yeah, so I, I met a lot of great people, some weird people and <laughs> some not so great people, you know, it's just like anything. And the people that you jibe with and you connect with, you say, well, maybe we have something we can work on together. And so Jim Whitaker had this article, this true story. And I, that was my first paid gig and it was terrifying. I bet. I mean, well, that's money where your mouth is time that, isn't it? Well, that's, that's the like, thing, you know, when you're writing a spec, you're just like, God, I hope somebody likes this. Yeah. You've got all the time in the world to do that. You? Yeah, yeah. I can, I can take as long as I want, but yeah. you, the second somebody writes you a check and says, okay, so you have, you're, yeah, you're a paid writer. You have yeah, eight, eight weeks to turn this in and you're just get like, on with it. Yeah. F- there's no excuses that's daunting. And boy, I'll tell you, the learning curve is quick. <laughs> wow. So how so, did you cope with that? Just, is that where the, I can do this self-belief and overcoming the ego part becomes particularly important, I would imagine. Yeah. I, I mean, I went through all of it. I, I went through, I can do this to what have I done to, oh my God, I'm in over my head to, no, oh, wait a minute. I think I got this to, wow, I've got this. Yeah, I really got this. And, you know, it's like the stages of grief, right? And (laughs) so I, I went through all that with it, you know, it was a, it was a quick learning curve, but the great thing was, is, is Jim Whitaker was a really great collaborator and we're still working on it. You know, we're still working on getting a, getting a director attached and, and financing and all that stuff. So you work with him for quite a while, but he is a great great collaborator and he's got great ideas and he's very generous. He was very generous with time. He gave me a few extensions as you know, it happens, but um, from there it goes on and you write a few more things and you, you get sent in other meetings and you get a job rewriting something else, which is, which is a lot easier, but still difficult in its own right. But yeah. And then the white tiger landed on my desk and I, you know, I was, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I've, I've been quite a, a reader for a while and I'd never heard of the book. And when I finally got the gig, um, I told people, I said, what are you working on now? I said, oh, I'm adapting a book called The White Tiger. I think you were one of them. You were like, oh my God, that's a brilliant book. And I love that book. And I had all these people say that. And I was like, I've never read it. Uh, but well, when uh, you told me, I was like, great book, but Christ, okay. That's, yeah, that, it was that's... It was a hard one. It was really yeah, hard. Yeah, because structure-wise... It's all over the place. It is really all over the place. And uh, I think what I came up with is, you know, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And I think it's in a great place to that we're going to take it to another level. Um, you know, so we're waiting right now. We're talking to some directors about it, uh, one in particular. And and he has some ideas. And if we all decide to get into bed together and do this, then we'll rewrite it and add another aspect. And because it is, it, it was a, it's a very strange book structure wise. And it's funny, but darkly funny and very poignant. And, and it's got a very odd perspective 
from the way the book is told, but we weren't sure if that perspective would work in a movie. At it's least very it, dark, isn't it? It's very dark. And we had to pull back on that darkness yeah, and, and give, give a lot more hope, you know, because under, under the underlying story is, is this story of hope, you know, this, this boy trying to come to a place of, of hope and, and exceeding the dreams that his father had for him. That's ultimately the deep ingredients of the book, but there's, you know, there's a lot of tricky things in that story that I think I accomplished, but you know, I could probably go back and I could write that one for a long time and still be going, scratching my head going, God, is this, do I got it? You know, you don't know, but uh, you know, everybody seems to be pretty happy with it so far. And now I'm on to another project and uh, you know, I can tell you about that one. It's weird. It feels strange saying some of the names of these people because you don't want to sound like a name dropper. But I mean, I guess that's the business I'm in now. So um, that that then turned into a call from my agent asking me if I'm a fan of LL Cool J. And I laughed thinking, well, who isn't a fan of LL Cool J? <laughs> I mean, come on, yeah, it's LL point. Cool J. He's, a, he's, a, he's an icon. <laughs> And so now I'm talking to LL about uh, writing a movie. He wants to do something completely different than he's ever done and do something a lot darker and visceral and, and uh, dramatic. And, you know, I was, uh, after I met with him and spoke with him about it, which was very surreal. You know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of neat, famous people. And generally they're just people, you know, even LL is just a guy, but you can't get it out of the back of your head that, yeah, he's also a guy that shaped a lot of, you know, what music is today as far as, you know, hip hop and rap and just, it's just an incredible thing. He's an icon. And yeah. um, well, he's LL Cool J. He's LL Cool J. I mean, anybody that goes by the name LL Cool J, <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah. Still, so I can still pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm working with him on a project right now that we're trying to, you know, we're going through the nuts and bolts of it, which is, which is great. And Freebird is, in the process of happening. And I have a couple of other spec scripts that I'm writing and yeah, so it's, it's treading along, like I said, at the pace of Hollywood. Yeah. But so uh, are you, in, are you in a position where you sort of feel like you need to get something made? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. You know, I have, uh, I've, I've since become acquainted with a few very, you know, accomplished screenwriters and, they all say that, you know, you get that first one made and if yeah. it's a success, you know, if it's even marginally successful, you, you've kind of been proven then. And so the town is like, oh, let's talk to this guy, you know, yeah. and, and it changes everything and I get it, you know, as it should. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I just really want to get something made because at the end of the day, you want to have something that you make and is out there that, you know, essentially could change somebody's life. It could change somebody's perspective, entertain somebody, make them laugh, cry, whatever it is. It's, I just love the fact that from my mind, I can start with nothing and come up with a germ of an idea and it can turn into something that can emotionally affect another human being I've never met. It's kind of a bizarrely profound thing if you really look at it like that. And I don't want to make it sound like it's that important, but to me, that is a really remarkable thing to be able to do. Well, when they're done well, 
Yeah. Um, well, hey, you know what? Even a bad one can affect somebody's life. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know, in a, in a bad way or or a horrific way. But uh, it's really a, a neat thing. It's a, and there's a bit of, you know, it's the fantasy of Hollywood is, you know, it's like a fairy tale all the time. Yeah, seductive. And, you know, and, and even though you get on a film set and I've been on a bunch and I've I've directed fairly decent sized commercials with big crews and it's like being on a construction site, but at the end product, you look at it and it's, it is very magical. And I get caught up in that. I love the magic of movies. So, you know, I'm still a little boy that way. What was the last good film you saw? Oh, the last good film. Okay. The last film that I saw that really affected me, that just blew my mind was Dunkirk. Oh, I still not seen it. Oh, oh, if it's still, if it's playing in a, in an IMAX theater, over there, I suggest seeing it in IMAX. Yeah, that's why I didn't, I sort of fucked it really because I I sort of missed that and then everyone was raving about it. So I thought, wow, you yeah. need to see it on a, on a real screen, don't you? By the yeah, it, it, uh, that movie blew my mind. I uh, Just as, a, as an audience member watching it, I was just in awe of it. It was so beautiful. It was beautifully acted, written, directed, everything. The photography was incredible. Um, but it sat with me afterwards. That's something that I just thought, geez, if I can, if I can ever write something and produce something that will sit with somebody for days after, I'll have, I'll then have done a good job. Yeah. So that movie just blew my mind. And, uh, I saw some other movies that were awful, but I'm not going to call them out because that's just bad form, isn't it? Yeah. No, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but you know. Somebody, somebody toiled and struggled and sat at a keyboard and worked their ass off on it. So still, it's still a, an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what always strikes me. It's just with so many people collaborating on it, there's a lot of luck involved in that process. To There must I, be to create something that does work. Yeah. I mean, you know, I look at, we've all watched that movie and gone, how the fuck did this get made? And it's such an awful way to look at it. Because it was somebody that believed in it. There was a lot of people that believed in it. And they worked really hard to get it made and get it out there. And then when they do, at that point, you, you're at the whims of, of uh, you know, love by committee. And yeah, well, even, even, I mean, even some like incredibly famous films. I mean, I just watched Once Upon a Time in America and, yeah. you know, that the story of that, I mean, yeah. like... The, the the how that was just destroyed wasn't it by the studio and by the edits and it, it you know, was 20 year battle to sort of get his vision back on screen and you know well that, happens that, to the best of him doesn't it yeah it does i mean i just watched that documentary on spielberg that's on hbo right now and you know everybody's he's like the golden boy of cinema his his story is is one of fairy tale of how he got to where he is and, but there's this one part in it when, you know, he directed one film, uh, 1942 and. Oh yeah. The comedy. Yeah. 1941. 1941. Oh, 1941. Yeah. Yeah. Thank the you. comedy thank with, uh, it's John Belushi, isn't it? It's John Belushi. There's a bunch of people. I mean, it, it's just, it, it was, bombed in it. It bombed. And he was, he was literally in director's jail 
And everybody, I think everybody forgets that. I forgot. I didn't know that he was, I wouldn't even know that he was in director's jail. I just forgot that he directed it. Like, look, yeah. I, forgo- I forgot the title, <laughs> but uh, it was, you know, it happens and nobody wanted to hire him at all. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark, George Lucas came along and said, well, what are you looking to do? And, you know, and then that's the rest is history. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's saved him. Cause that and, was his follow up to Jaws, right? Yeah. 41. Yeah. It? Like, Yeah. I and Jaws so. is obviously a famously like almost a disaster, isn't it? You know. Well, yeah, Jaws. He thought that that was gonna. It, the ironic thing is, both George Lucas and Spielberg thought that their movies were gonna end their careers. Yeah, right. And How then, it, and what it did is it changed the world of cinema. You know, it yeah. changed it changed storytelling and and Spielberg, like his film, created the summer blockbuster. Yeah, Jaws proving the old uh, truism, the old Hollywood truism. What is it? No one knows anything. No one knows anything. I mean, he was 27 when he did that. Yeah, incredible. What, what was I doing when I was 27? <laughs> you know, well, you were uh, you were just counting your your pro models on Barfoot. I don't that's, think there's, that's anything, r- I don't that's think there's right. anything wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, but like I look at it and I think, I, I mean, just, how how Spielberg's method? I, I mean, but I think he was a lot more. He had the eye on the prize. He knew exactly from a young age what he wanted to do. I didn't. I didn't know that I wanted to write and direct movies. You know, I, I have always been enamored with films. And since I was a kid, I, lo- I, you know, I remember, I remember my sister sneaking me into Jaws at a drive-in theater and it changing my, I was, I'd never been scared like that in my life, you know, and then films coming up through the years of seeing them and seeing Star Wars and just that changed everybody's life at that, at that age, you know, it still does. Uh, you know, it's storytelling on that level just blows my mind. So, but yeah, I was just, I was kind of like, I have a career of happenstance. It just, I like doing this at the time. So I did it. And then it was something I was good at. So I excelled at it and then it, you know, domino effect. So I'm very, very lucky, you know, it's, it doesn't happen like this for everybody. And I get that. So now that I'm here and doing what I actually love, like, you know, screenwriting is, I love it and I hate it, but I hate it for the reasons of, because it's really hard. It's really fucking scary. It's, it's the most difficult thing. Um, and it's stressful when it's, when it's work, but I, I love it. I love figuring out the puzzle of a story and how to tell it. And when that happens, when you have that moment go, oh my God, I know what to do. Oh, that, that is an amazing feeling that, is hard to bottle. Amazing. Yeah. Well, John, better let you get back to it. Yeah. That's look, I've got, I've got pages to get back to. You've been, you've been eating up all my morning. <laughs> yeah. No, that's been, that's been great, man. Thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to do it. I've really enjoyed it. No, me too. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's uh, it's funny because I'll, the second we hang up, I will probably remember a million things that I forgot to say. <laughs> that's, uh, all good. And, Always and, the way. Everybody that, says that. So there you go. That was my interview with John Boyer. And uh, yeah, plenty of food for thought there, eh? For me, the theme of that one was really creativity, imposter syndrome, all that weighty good stuff. You know, when do you give up? Or is that struggle just an an integral part of the process? As someone who's been through that in numerous fields over the years, I find this an endlessly fascinating topic of conversation. And it was uh, great to get John's insights into it. Also really enjoyed the chat about Freebird, 
if you go on John's Instagram, you're going to see that he's been shooting his sizzle reel and it looks uh, it looks brilliant. So yeah, let's really hope that he gets the green light for that one. Um, I liked it. I like the chat on working with LL Cool J and it was fascinating hearing the stories uh, about the White Tiger adaptation. And of course, the snowboarding years, third ever pro model. How legit is that? Pretty legit, eh? Anyway, thanks so much to everyone who's been in touch the last few weeks to say how much they enjoyed the interview with Brian Gucci. A um, couple of episodes back, as I thought it might, it's been pretty popular that one and everybody seemed to really enjoy Gucci's insights into his snowboarding life. There's also been surprisingly little backlash at my own orthodox tactic of um, bollocking my own audience for not sharing the podcast thoroughly enough. Again, a couple of episodes back. So thanks for sticking with me there. I'm happy to say that some people have started sharing it. So hats off if that's you. Also want to say thanks to everybody who nominated me as one of the 100 essential podcasts for the Do Letchers list, which uh, a few of you were kind enough to to forward me emails about that. No idea if I made the final cut, but it's really great that people are shilling me out in that way. So thank you very much. And yeah, there's been some nice press on the podcast recently as well, which, uh, um, so I'm starting to pop up in the unlikeliest places. So yeah, keep, keep an eye out for all that. So that's it for now. I'm off to the Kendall Mountain Festival as we speak by the time this comes out I'll probably have been and gone um, and yeah I'm going to be doing some work up there interviewing a couple of people little Portland update actually um, last episode I mentioned or actually again it was two episodes ago I mentioned that I'd been in Portland and I did have about four podcasts lined up for Portland but for a variety of reasons they all fell through so yeah no Portland special this time but maybe next time when I head back there in the spring. So yeah, still plenty more where this one came from. So enough waffle from me. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a good one and I'll see you next time. See you later. Mm-hmm.